Chapter 8 of The Life of Clara Barton, Volume 1 by William Barton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 8 Leaves from Her Unpublished Autobiography. When Clara Barton began to teach school, she was only a little girl. To her family, she seemed even younger and more tiny than she was. But she had taken the words of Dr. Fowler to heart, and she determined to teach and to teach successfully. Mrs. Stafford, formerly Mamie Barton, remembers hearing her mother tell how seriously Clara took the edict of the phrenologist. To her, it was nothing less than predestination and prophecy. In her own mind, she was already a teacher but she realized that in the mind of her household she was still a child. She stood beside the large stone fireplace, looking very slender and very small, and with dignity asked, But what am I to do with only two little old waifish dresses? Julia, David Barton's young bride, was first to discern the pertinence of the question. If Clara was to teach school, she must have apparel suitable for her vocation. The two little old waifish dresses, which had been deemed adequate for her home and school life, were replaced by new frocks that fell below her shoe tops, and Clara Barton began her work. She was a quick-tempered little teacher, dignified and self-possessed, little and young though she was she was not to be trifled with she flogged and on occasion expelled but she won respect at the outset and very soon affection then flogging ceased almost altogether at first she was teacher only of the spring and autumn school nearest her home then she taught in districts in oxford farther away then came the incontrovertible certificate of success in her invitation to teach the winter school, which, according to precedent, must be managed by a man capable of whipping the entire group of big boys. And in all this experience of teaching, she succeeded. In 1908, she wrote the second installment of her autobiography, and in that she related how she finished her teaching in Oxford and went for further education to Clinton Institute. Hard, tiresome years were these, with no advancement for me. Some, I hoped, for others. Little children grew to be large and mainly well-behaved. Boys grew to manhood and continued faithfully in their work, or went out and entered into business, seeking other vocations. A few girls became teachers, but more continued at their looms or set up housekeeping for themselves. But whatever sphere opened to them, they were all mine, second only to the claims and interests of the real mother. And so they have remained, scattered over the world, some near, some far. I have been their confidant, standing at their nuptials if possible, lent my name to their babies, 
followed their fortunes to war's gory fields, staunched their blood, dressed their wounds, and closed their northern eyes on the hard-fought fields of the Southland. And yet, all this I count as little in comparison with the faithful, grateful love I hold today of the few survivors of my Oxford schools. I shall have neglected a great, I could almost say a holy duty, if I fail to mention the name and connect the presence of the Reverend Horatio Bardwell with this school. Reverend Dr. Bardwell, an early India missionary, and for over twenty years pastor of the Congregational Church of Oxford, where his memory lovingly lingers today, as if he had passed from them but yesterday, or indeed had not passed at all. Dr. Bardwell was continuously on the school board of the town, and his custom was to drop in upon a school, familiarly, at a most unexpected moment. I recall the amusing scenes when, by some unusual sound behind me, my attention would be called from the class I had before me to see my entire school, which had risen unbidden, standing with hands resting on the desk before them, heads reverently bent, and Dr. Bardwell, midway of the open door, with hands upraised in mute wonder and admiration. At length he would find voice with, What a sight! What a multitude! The school reseated itself when bidden, and prepared for the visit of a half-hour of pleasant conversation, anecdotes, and advice that even the smallest would not willingly have missed. It was the self-reliant, self-possessed, and unbidden courtesy of these promiscuous children that won the doctor's admiration. He saw in these something for a future to build upon. It is to be remembered that I am not writing romance, nor yet ancient history, where I can create or vary my models to suit myself. It is, in fact, semi-present history, with most notable characters still existing, who can at any moment rise up and call me to order. To avoid such a contingency, I may sometimes be more explicit than I otherwise would be at the risk of prolixity. This possibility leads me to state that a few times in the years I was borrowed for a part of a winter term by some neighboring town, where it would be said there was trouble and some school was not getting on well. I usually found that report to have been largely elusive, for they got on very well with me. Probably it was the old adage of a new broom, for I did nothing but teach them. I recall one of these experiences as transpiring in Millbury, the grand old town where the lamented and honored mother of our president-elect Judge Taft had just passed to a better land. That early and undeserved reputation for discipline always clung to me. 
Most of this transpired during years in which I should have been in school myself. Using time and opportunities for my own advancement, which could not be replaced. This thought grew irresistibly upon me, until I decided that I must withdraw and find a school, the object of which should be to teach me something. The number of educational institutions for women was one to a thousand as compared with today. I knew I must place myself so far away that a run of bad luck in the home school could not persuade me to return. It would be sure to have one. Religiously, I had been educated in the liberal thought of my family, and preferring to remain in that atmosphere, I decided upon the Liberal Institute of Clinton, New York. I recall with pain, even now, the regret with which my family, especially my brothers, heard my announcement. I had become literally a part, if not a partner, of them in school and office. My brother Stephen was school superintendent, thus there was no necessity for making my intentions public and I would spare both my school and myself the pain of parting. I closed my autumn term, as usual, on Friday night. On Monday night, the jingling cutter of my brothers, for it was early sleighing, took me to the station for New York. This was in reality going away from home. I had left the smothered sighs, the blessings, and the memories of a little life behind me. My journey was made in silence and safety, and the third day found me installed as a guest in the Clinton House of Clinton, Oneida County, New York, a typical old-time tavern. My hosts were Mr. and Mrs. Samuel Bertram, and again the hand rests and memory pauses to pay its tribute of grateful, loving respect to such as I shall never know again, this side the gates eternal. It was holiday season. The Institute was undergoing a transfer from old to new buildings. These changes caused a delay of some weeks while I became a part and parcel of the family I had so incidentally and fortunately fallen among. Clinton was also the seat of Hamilton College. The sisters and relatives of the students of Hamilton contributed largely to the personnel of the Institute. Reverend Dr. Sawyer presided over Hamilton, and Miss Louise Barker, with a competent corps of assistants, presided over the Institute. It was a cold, blustering winter day that assembled us in the almost as cold schoolrooms of the newly finished and sparsely furnished building. Even its clean new brick walls on its stately eminence looked cold, and the two-plank walk with a two-foot space between leading up from town was not suggestive of the warmest degree of sociability to say the least of it. My introduction to our preceptress, or president, Miss Barker, was both a pleasure and a surprise to me. 
I found an unlooked-for activity, a cordiality, and an irresistible charm of manner that none could have foreseen, a winning, indescribable grace which I have met in only a few persons in a whole lifetime. Those who remember the eminent Dr. Lucy Hall Brown of Brooklyn, who only a year ago passed out through California's Golden Gate, will be able to catch something of what I mean, but cannot describe. Neither could they. To no one had I mentioned anything of myself or my past. No certificate of character had been mentioned, and no recommendation from my last place been required of me. There was no reason why I should volunteer my history or step in among that crowd of eager pupils as a schoolmarm expected to know everything. The easiest way for me was to keep silent, as I did, and so well kept that I left that institute at the close without a mistrust on the part of anyone that I had ever taught school a day. The difficulty to be met lay mainly in the assignment of studies. The prescribed number was a cruel limit. I was there for study. I required no rudiments and wanted no allowance for waste time. I would use it all, and diffidently I made this fact known at the head, asking one more and one more study until the limit was stretched out of all reasonable proportions. I recall with amusement the last evening when I entered with my request. The teachers were assembled in the parlor, and divining my errand, as I had never any other, Miss Barker broke into a merry laugh. With Miss Barton, we have a few studies left. You had better take what there are, and we will say nothing about it. This broke the ice and the line. I could only join in the laugh, and after this studied what I would, and nothing was said. I would by no means be understood as crediting myself with superior scholarship. There were doubtless far more advanced scholars there than I, but I had a drilled rudimentary knowledge which they had never had, and I had the habit of study with a burning anxiety to make the most of lost time. So true it is that we value our privileges only when we have lost them. Miss Barton spent her vacations at the Institute. A few teachers were there, and a small group of students, and she pursued her studies and gave her reading wider range. She wanted to go home, but the distance seemed great, and she was there to learn. Her mother died while she was at Clinton. Her death occurred in July, but before the term had ended. Clara could not reach home in time for the funeral, and her family knew it and sent her word not to undertake the journey. She finished her school year and her course, made a visit to her home, and then journeyed to Bordentown, New Jersey, to visit her friends, the Norton family. 
There the opportunity came to her of teaching the winter term of the Bordentown school. Public schools of that day, she wrote, ceased with the southern boundary of New England and New York. Each pupil was assessed a certain fee, the aggregate of which formed the teacher's salary. She undertook the school on the fee basis, but in a short time changed it to a public school open to all the children of school age in Bordentown. It was that town's first free school. The school board agreed to give her the opportunity to try the experiment. She tells how it came about. She looked over the little group who attended her subscription school and then saw the much larger number outside, and she was not happy. But the boys! I found them on all sides of me. Every street corner had little knots of them idle, listless, as if to say, what shall one do when one has nothing to do? I sought every inconspicuous occasion to stop and talk with them. I saw nothing unusual in them. Much like other boys I had known, unusually courteous, showing special instruction in that line, and frequently of unusual intelligence. They spoke of their banishment or absence from school with far less of bravado or boasting than would have been expected under the circumstances, and often with regret. "'Lady, there is no school for us,' answered a bright-faced lad of fourteen as he rested his foot on the edge of a little park fountain where I had accosted him. We would be glad to go if there was one. I had listened to such as this long enough, and without returning to my hotel, I sought Mr. Sidem as chairman of the school committee and asked for an interview. By this time, in his capacity of postmaster, we had formed a tolerable acquaintance. Now, for the first time, I made known my desire to open a public school in Bordentown, teaching it myself. Surprise, discouragement, resistance, and sympathy were all pictured on his manly face. He was troubled for terms in which to express the mental conflict, but in snatches, something like this. These boys were renegades, many of them more fit for the penitentiary than school. A woman could do nothing with them. They wouldn't go to school if they had the chance, and the parents would never send them to a pauper school. I would have the respectable sentiment of the entire community against me. I could never endure the obloquy, not to call it disgrace, that I should meet. And to crown all, I should have the bitter opposition of all the present teachers, many of whom were ladies of influence in society and would contend vigorously for their rights. A strong man would quail and give way under what he would be compelled to meet. And what could a woman, a young woman and a stranger, do? 
He spoke very kindly and appreciatingly of the intention, acknowledging the necessity, and commending the nature of the effort, but it was ill-timed, and had best be at once abandoned as impracticable. With this honest effort, and wiping the perspiration from his forehead, he rested. After a moment's quiet, and seeing that he did not resume, I said with a respect, which I most sincerely felt, Thank you, Mr. Sidham. Shall I speak? Certainly, Miss Barton, and with a little appreciative laugh, I will try to be as good a listener as you have been. I thanked him again for the evident sincerity of his objections, assuring him that I believed them drawn entirely in my interest, and his earnest desire to save me from what seemed to him an impossible undertaking, with only failure and humiliation as sure and logical results. A few of these I would like to answer, and throwing off the mask I had worn since Clinton, told him plainly that I was, and had been for years, a teacher of the public schools of New England. That was my profession, and that, if entered in the long and honored competitive list of such, I did not suppose that in either capacity, experience, or success I should stand at the foot. I had studied the character of these boys, and had intense pity for, but no fear of them. As for exclusion from society, I had not sought society, and could easily dispense with it if they so willed. I was not here for that. As for reputation, I had brought with me all I needed, and that of the character that a bit of village gossip could not affect. With all respect for the prejudices of the people, I should not try to increase them. My only desire was to open and teach a school in Bordentown, to which its outcast children could go and be taught, and I would emphasize that desire by adding that I wished no salary. I would open and teach such a school without remuneration, but my effort must have the majesty of the law and the power vested in its offices behind it or could not stand. If I secured a building and proceeded to open a school, it would be only one more private school like the score they already had, that the school board, as officers of the law, with accepted rights and duties, must so far connect themselves with the effort as to provide quarters, the necessary furnishings, and to give due and respectable notice of the same among the people. In fact, it must stand as by their order, leaving the work and results to me. I was not there for necessity. Fortunately, I needed nothing of them, neither as an adventuress. I had no personal ambitions to serve, but as an observer of unwelcome conditions, and, as I thought, harmful as well, to try, so far as possible, the power of a good, wise, beneficent, 
and established state law as against the force of ignorance, blind prejudice, and the tyranny of an obsolete, outlived public opinion. I desire to see them both fairly placed upon their merits before an intelligent community, leaving the results to the winner. If the law, after trial, were not acceptable, or of use to the people serving their best interest, abolish or change it. If it were, enforce and sustain it. My reply was much longer than the remarks that had called for it, but the pledge of good listening was faithfully kept. When he spoke again, it was to ask if I desired my proposition to be laid before the school board. I surely did. He would speak with the gentleman this evening and call for a meeting tomorrow. Our interview had consumed two hours and we parted better friends than we commenced. The following afternoon, to my surprise, I was most courteously invited to sit with the school board in its deliberations, and I made the acquaintance of two more plain, honest-minded gentlemen. The subject was fairly discussed, but with great misgivings, a kind of tender sympathy running through it all. At length, Mr. Sidon arose, and addressing his colleagues, said, Gentlemen, we feel alike, I am sure, regarding the hazardous nature of this experiment and its probable results, but situated as we are, officers of a law which we are sworn to obey and enforce, can we legally decline to accede to this proposition? which is in every respect within the law? From your expressed opinions of last evening, I believe we agree on this point, and I put the vote. It was a unanimous yea, with the decision that the old closed schoolhouse be refitted and a school commenced. The school speedily outgrew its quarters, and Clara sent word to Oxford that she must have an assistant. Her brother Stephen secured the services of Miss Frances Childs, who subsequently became Mrs. Bernard Barton Vassal. Frances had just finished her first term as teacher of a school in Oxford, and she proved a very capable assistant. Letters from and personal interviews with her have brought vividly before me the conditions of Clara's work in Bordentown. She thus writes me of her happy memories. When Clara's school in Bordentown had become so pronounced a success that she could not manage it alone, she sent for me. I had a separate schoolroom, the upstairs room, over a tailor shop, I had about sixty pupils. Clara and I boarded and roomed together. The editor of the Borden Town Gazette roomed at the same place. He frequently commented on the fact that when Clara and I were in our room together, we were always talking and laughing. It was a constant wonder to him. He could not understand how we found so much to laugh at. Clara was so sensitive 
she felt it keenly when any pupil had to be punished, or any parent was disappointed, but she did not indulge very long in mourning or self-reproach. She knew she had done her best, and she laughed and made the best of it. Clara had an unfailing sense of humor. She said to me once that of all the qualities she possessed, that for which she felt most thankful was her sense of humor. She said it helped her over many hard places. Clara had quick wit and was very ready with repartee and apt reply. I remember an evening when she brought to a close a rather lengthy discussion by a quick reply that set us all to laughing. We spent an evening at the home of the Episcopalian minister, who was one of the school committee. The discussion turned to phrenology. Clara had great faith in it. The minister did not believe in it at all. They had quite an argument about it. He told Clara of a man who had suffered an injury to the brain which had resulted in the removal of a considerable part of it. He argued that if there was anything in phrenology, that man would have been deprived of a certain group of mental capabilities, but that he got on very well with only part of a brain. Clara replied quickly, Then there's hope for me. So the discussion ended in a hearty laugh. As a schoolteacher, Clara Barton was a pronounced success. We are not dependent wholly upon her own account of her years as a teacher. From many and distant places, her pupils rose up and called her blessed. Nothing pleased her more than the letters which she received from time to time in after years from men and women who had been pupils of hers, and who wrote to tell her with what satisfaction and gratitude they remembered her instruction. Some of these letters were received by her as early as 1851, when she was at Clinton Institute. Her answers were long, appreciative, and painstaking. In those days, Clara Barton was something of an artist, and had taught drawing and painting. One or two of her letters of this period have ornamented letterheads with birds and other scroll work. Her letters always abounded in good cheer and often contained wholesome advice, though she did not preach to her pupils. Some of these letters from former pupils continued to reach her after she had become well-known. Men in business and in political life wrote reminding her that they had been bad boys in her school and telling of her patience, her tact, and the inspiration of her ideals. Her home letters in the years before the war are the letters of a dutiful daughter and affectionate sister. She wrote to her father, her brothers, and especially to Julia, the wife of David Barton who was perhaps the best correspondent in the family. She bore on her heart all the family anxieties. If any member of the family was sick, the matter was constantly on her mind. She wanted to know every detail, 
In what room were they keeping him? Was the parlor chimney drawing well? And was every possible provision made for comfort? She made many suggestions as to simple remedies, and more as to nursing, hygiene, and general comfort. Always when there was sickness, she wished that she were there. She wanted to assist in the nursing. She sent frequent messages to her brothers and sisters, nieces and nephews. The messages were always considerate, affectionate, and unselfish. She was not often homesick. In general, she made the best of her absences from home and busied herself with the day's task. But whenever there was anything at home which suggested an occasion for anxiety or an opportunity for service, then she wished herself home. She visualized the home at such times and carried a mental picture of the house, the room, the bedside of the patient. One of these letters, written from Washington to Julia Barton, when her father was dangerously ill, may here be inserted as an illustration of her devotion to her parents and to all members of her family. Washington, D.C., 29th December, 1860. Dear Sister, I don't know what to say or how to write you. I'm so uncertain of the scenes you may be passing through. In thought and spirit, I am in the room with you every moment. That it is sad and painful, or sad and desolate, I know. I can almost see, and almost hear, and almost know how it all is. Between us seems to be only the veil so thin, so strong. There are moments when I think I can brush it away with my hand and look upon that dear treasured form and face, the earliest loved and latest mourned of all my life. Sometimes I am certain I hear the patient's feeble moan, and at others above me the clouds seem to divide, and in the opening up among the blue and golden, that loved face, smiling and pleasant, looks calmly down upon me and I think it is all past, and my poor father is at rest. Aye, more that he has learned the password to the mystic lodge of God and entered in, that the providences and mysteries he has loved so much to contemplate are being made plain to him, that the inquiries of his intelligent soul are to be satisfied, and that the God he has always worshipped he may now adore. And in spite of all the grief, the agony of parting, there is pleasure in these reflections, and consolation in the thought that while we may have one the less tie upon earth, we shall have one more treasure in heaven. And yet again, when I look into my own heart, there is underlying the whole a little of the old-time hope, hope that he may yet be spared to us a little longer, that a few more months or years may be given us in which to prove the love and devotion of our hearts, 
that we may again listen to his wise counsels and kind admonitions, and hourly I pray heaven that, if it be consistent with divine arrangement, the cup may pass from him, but God's will, not mine, be done. If my father still lives and realizes, will you tell him how much I love him and regret his sufferings, and how much rather I would endure them myself if he could be saved from them? With love and sympathy to all, I am your affectionate sister, Clara. Her letters to members of her family are seldom of great importance. They concern themselves with the trivial details of her and their daily life, thoughtful answers to all their inquiries, and expressions of affection and interest in all their concerns. In some respects, the letters are more interesting which she wrote when she was temporarily in Oxford. One of these was addressed to her brother David, who had gone south to visit Stephen, then a resident of North Carolina. It was written at the time when she had been removed from her position in the patent office, and for a while was at home. David had written Julia in some concern, lest he should not have provided in advance for her every possible want before his leaving her to go south. Clara replied to this letter, making merry over the destitute condition in which David had left his wife, and giving details about business affairs and home life. It is a thoroughly characteristic letter, full of fun and detail and neighborhood gossip and sisterly goodwill. If her brothers were to stay in the South in hot weather, she wanted to be with them. She had already proposed to Stephen that he let her go south and look after him, and Stephen had sought to dissuade her, telling her that the conditions of life were uncomfortable and that she would be shocked by seeing the almost nude condition of the Negro laborers. None of these things frightened her. The only things she was afraid of were things about which she had told David, and we cannot help wishing we knew what they were. It is good to know that by this time the objects of her fear made rather a short list, for she was by nature timid and easily terrified, but had become self-reliant and strong. North Oxford, June 17th, 1858. Dear Brother, This is an excessively warm day, and Julia scarcely thinks she can get her courage up to the sticking point to sit down to letter writing, but I will try it, for the weather is all alike to me, only just comfortably warm, and I can as well scribble letters as anything. We are rejoiced to hear such good reports from Stephen. It cannot be, however, that he was ready to return with you. For his sake, I hope he could, but should be frightened if I knew he attempted it. We are all well. Received your short letter in due time. Julia has discoursed considerably upon the propriety of that word destitute, which you made use of. 
She says you left her with a barrel and a half of flour, a barrel and a half of crackers, a good new milch cow, fish, ham, dried beef, a barrel of pork, four good hogs in the pen, a field of early potatoes just coming on, a good garden, plenty of fowls, a good grain crop in and a man to take care of them, a good team, thirty cords of wood at the door, and a horse and chaise to ride where she pleased. This, she thinks, is one of the last specimens of destitution. Can scarcely sleep at night through fear of immediate want. And beside, we have not mentioned the crab apples. I shouldn't wonder if we have fifty bushels of them. This only depends upon the size they attain. They are certainly enough in number. The hoeing is all done once and the piece out by Mr. Baker's gone over the second time. Uncle Joe helped. The taxes are paid, yours, Colonel Davis's, and Brine's. The two latter I have charged to them and pasted the receipts in the books. I have put down Brine's one time for last week and made out a new time page for July. Brine has gone to Worcester, with old Ebb today, and I have put that down and carried his account to a new page. Whitlock has not paid yet, but the two-foot-forty-inch man on the hill has paid seventy-five cents. Old Mrs. Collier is going to pay before she gets herself a new pair of shoes, and Sam avers that she is not only in need of shoes, but stockings, to which fact, he is a living eyewitness. Johnson has an assent, will pay next week. This, I believe, finishes up the schedule of money matters until we report next time. Mr. Samuel Smith is dead, was buried Thursday, I think. I have just written to the colonel at Boston and to cousin Ira the intelligence from Stephen when we first learned that he was really better and had hardly sent the letters away before the judge came in. He was anxious to hear from us and also to attend the funeral, so took the morning train and came out, took dinner, and then he and father took Dick and the chase and went to the funeral came back, stayed to supper, and I went and carried him to the depot. We had a most delightful visit from him. Every time I see Cousin Ira, I think he is a better and better cousin. It is hardly possible for us to esteem him enough. I forgot to tell you about the garden. Julia has hoed it all over, set out the cabbage plants, waters them almost every day, they are looking finely. She has weeded all the beds, and Sam says he will help her some about the garden. Brine doesn't seem to take an interest in the fine arts. Julia says she hopes you will not take a moment's trouble about us, for we are getting on finely and shall do so. But you must take care of yourself. We i.e. Julia and I, shall ride down to the colonel's this evening after sundown. I should like to see him, and know he would like to hear from you again. 
I have not heard where Stephen is or how since you wrote, but trust he is no worse, and I also hope you may be able to favor and counsel him so as to keep him up when he gets back. I feel as much solicitude on your account as his, for I know how liable you are to get out of fix. I wish every day that I was there to see that both of you had what you needed to take and to be done for you. I was earnest in what I wished you to say to Stephen, that I was ready to go to Carolina or anywhere else if I could serve him. Not that I want a job, as I should insist on putting my labor against my board, but earnestly, if you are both going to try to summer there, and Stephen so feeble as he is, I shall be glad to be with you. Still, if not proper or acceptable, I, of course, shall not urge myself or feel slighted, but I feel afraid to have you both there by yourselves. While you go away on business, he will be obliged to do something at home to get sick, and maybe I could do it for him if I were there, or at least take care of him in time. I am not afraid of naked negroes or rough houses, and you know the only things in the world I should fear, for I told you. Nothing else aside from these. I have no precaution or care for anything there could be there, but I have said enough and too much. Stephen may think I am willing to make myself more plenty than welcome, but I have obeyed the dictates of my feelings and judgment and can do no more, and I could not have done it and done less, so I leave it. If I can serve you, tell me. I have seen neither of the Washington tourists yet, and I went to the depot this morning to meet Irving if he was there, but he did not come. Please tell me if Mr. Vassal talks of going to Carolina this summer, or will he come north? I have offered Julia this space to fill up, but she says I have told all the news and declines, and it is almost time to get ready to ride, so good-bye and write a word or two often. Don't trouble to send long letters. It is hot work to write. Sleep all you can. Don't drink ice water. Be careful about grease. Don't expose yourself to damp evenings or mornings if too misty, or you'll get the chills. Love to Stephen. Will he ever write me, I wonder? From your affectionate sister, Clara. Great as was Clara Barton's success in Bordentown, she did not move forward without opposition. Although she had built up the public school to a degree of efficiency which it had not before known, she met the resolute opposition of those who objected to a woman's control of a school as important as this had now grown to be. It was rather pathetic that her very success should have been used as an occasion of opposition. The school was alleged to be too large for a woman to manage. A woman had made it large and had managed it while it was in the process of becoming large and was continuing to manage it very well. However, 
the demand for a male principal grew very strong, and against the wishes of a large majority of the pupils, a male principal was chosen. Clara Barton would not remain and occupy a second place. Moreover, it was time for her to leave the schoolroom. For almost twenty years she had been constantly teaching, and her work at Bordentown, never easy, had ended in a record of success which brought its own reaction and disappointment. Suddenly she realized that her energy was exhausted. Her voice completely failed. A nervous collapse, such as came to her a number of times later in life, laid her prostrate. She left her great work at Bordentown and went to Washington to recuperate. She did not know it, but she was leaving the schoolroom behind her forever. In those days, Clara Barton was much given to writing verse. She never entirely gave it up. The most of her poetical writing during this period is of no especial interest, but consists of verses for autograph albums and other ephemeral writing. Once, while she was at Bordentown, she tried a rhymed advertisement. At least twice while she was teaching in that village, she made a round trip to Philadelphia on the steamboat John Stevens. On the second occasion, the steamboat had been redecorated, and she scribbled a jingle concerning its attractions in the back of her diary. She may have had some idea that her pegasus could be profitably harnessed to the chariot of commerce, and it is possible that she offered this little jingle to the proprietors of the boat or to the editor of the Bordentown Gazette, who roomed at the house where she boarded. The files of that enterprising publication have not been searched, but they probably would show that now and then Clara Barton handed to the editor some poetical comment on passing events. So far as is known, however, these lines about the beauty of the rejuvenated John Stevens have not appeared in print before, and it is now too late for them to be of value in increasing the business of her owners. It is pleasant, however, to have this reminder of her occasional outings while she was teaching school, and to know that she enjoyed them as she did her river journey to Philadelphia and back. Advertisement Written on board the John Stevens between Bordentown and Philadelphia March 12, 1853 You've not seen the John Stevens since her new dress she donned? Why, you'd think she'd been touched by a fairy's wand. Such carpets, such curtains, just sprang into light. Such mirrors bewildering the overcharged sight. Such velvets, such cushions, such sofas and all. And the polish that gleams on her glittering wall. Now, if it be true that you've not seen her yet, we ask you, nay, urge you, implore and beset, that you will no longer your interests forget, but at once take a ticket, as we have today, and our word as a warrant, you'll find it will pay.
End of chapter 8